you look at your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, you'll see that Jesus is approached by some Pharisees with a question. And as usual, the question was not really a sincere question. It was more an attempt to try to trap Jesus in what he was saying. They're testing him, that passage says. You would have thought that they would have learned by now that they could not get the best of Jesus, but they were slow learners. Verse 3 is the question that the Pharisees are asking him. It goes like this. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? There were two rabbinical schools of thought in Jesus' day about the subject of divorce. The first school of thought was that a, a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. If she burned the toast, he could divorce, divorce her. If she went out in public with her hair uncovered, he could divorce her. If she spoke disrespectfully of her in-laws, he could divorce her. If she was quarrelsome, he could divorce her. If she couldn't bear him children within 10 years, he could divorce her. If, if he saw another woman who was prettier than her, he could divorce her. This school of thought was widely accepted, and it put the woman in a very vulnerable position. She had no protection whatsoever under this school of thinking. The husband could divorce his wife any time for any reason. The second school of thought was that a woman could, could be divorced by her husband, only if there was a serious sexual offense. Now, of course, Jesus would have been much closer to this second school of thought, although he would not have aligned himself completely with this school of thought, or certainly the other school of thought, because neither group gave the woman any rights at all. It was always what the man could do to her. You need to understand, however Jesus answered this question, there were going to be people in the crowd that didn't like his answer. But Jesus wasn't too worried about that. He was more concerned about speaking the truth. I want to read to you Jesus' answer to these Pharisees, verses 4 through 9 of Matthew chapter 19. Keep in mind the question, is it lawful... For a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. And this is what Jesus says to them. He answers and says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. It's impossible to cover this whole text in great detail 
with the, with the time that we have. But I want to mention to you some observations that I have of this text. First observation is this. God is in favor of marriage. Not only write that down on your paper, but write it down on your mind and on your heart. God is in favor of marriage. And and we need to know that because we live in a day and age where marriage is becoming less popular and the society in which we live is seeking to redefine marriage. Instead of marriage being between a man and a woman... Society is trying to tell us that marriage can be between two men or between two women. And for just a moment, I want to be very clear to you this morning in what God's Word has to say about that. And I want to remind you that it does not matter what society says or thinks. What matters is, what does God's Word say? And and I hope you believe that with all of your heart. What does God's Word say? This book is the truth, and the truth will never change. The heavens and the earth will pass away, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. But God's Word will not pass away. So what does God's Word say about society's new definition of marriage? I want to read to you from Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 28. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. And instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the unrighteous. They've twisted their thinking in who they're going to worship, and they have begun to worship themselves rather than God. So, verse 24, God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men, and as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Look at verse 32. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. Could it be any more clear than that? It does not matter what the Supreme Court judges say. It does not matter what the president says. It doesn't matter what the popular vote is. God's word says this way of living, this new definition of marriage 
that society is trying to push upon us, this way of living according to God's word is shameful. Did you notice all of the different adjectives that describe this? It is shameful, it is degrading, it is vile, it is wicked, and it is unnatural, and it is foolish, and it will bring about the judgment of God. Now, in case there's any doubt of how God views homosexuality, I'll read to you one more passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Homosexuality is a sin, and it is not a viable option for the marriage relationship. That's what God's Word says. Now, does that mean that the church needs to look down on these people and give up on these people? Not at all. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. And the church should have open arms to sinful people. We should be inviting them to Jesus Christ and and welcoming them to the church and, and hoping that they will find the Savior of the church. We need to be pointing them towards Jesus in loving them Loving them to the Savior, but we cannot compromise our message in any way. We cannot, we cannot allow them to think that this is okay. Because it's not okay from God's point of view. We lose God's power and God's blessing when we compromise the message. And so we speak the message in truth and in love. And we try to love these people the way Jesus would love them. Now, there's as we're talking about how society is trying to redefine marriage and, and, and their, their view of marriage in general, I think there's another issue that we need to look at as we're trying to see what God's Word actually has to say about, about marriage. And that is the issue of living together before marriage. It has become the norm, which I can understand why that's the case with people of the world. If it feels good, do it. That's the world's philosophy. And sure, we can understand that. But what really concerns me is that so many young people who have grown up within the church are going this route too. They too are adopting this kind of philosophy. They are rejecting the word of God that they have heard all of their life. And and I'm wondering, why is that? Uh, Do they think that God's word is just outdated, that it's, it's so old it doesn't apply to their life today. Maybe they're thinking that God's not serious about what he has said in his word. Maybe they're just so into the world and not so into God. I, I don't know. It's a combination of all of that. But it is heart-wrenching 
to see our kids go in that route. I want to emphasize again that what God's word says, it is true. And though this book is old, it is not outdated. It is applicable to our lives in 2014. The truth does not change. Sex outside of marriage is a sin. And if we insist on that lifestyle, according to the scripture that we've already read, we are endangering our soul for all eternity. The fornicator will not go to heaven, the scripture says. And besides that, do we not know that God's word is best for our life? Jeremiah 29, verse 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. If we submit to God's way, our life will be so much better and happier than if we go our own way or the world's way. The world's way brings destruction. God's way brings life and hope and a future. And I want to, to, to have this message strike home in your heart. God is in favor of marriage. We see that from the beginning as he gave Adam a helper that was suitable for him. In other words, she was just right for him. Eve was exactly what Adam needed to be completed. And, and she fulfilled him and he fulfilled her. I want to give to you a second observation from this passage of Scripture about marriage, and that is this. God intended for marriage to have a leaving and a cleaving. We read that in verse 5. The man is to leave his father and mother, and he is to be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There needs to be a cutting of the apron strings. You ever seen a couple where either with the wife or the husband, they had not been able to leave behind their parents? Presents a problem, doesn't it? That doesn't mean that we completely shut them out of our life. We shouldn't do that. What it does mean is that they are not in the middle of our relationship building a wedge between us. There needs to be a leaving that should happen, and then there should be a cleaving that should happen. The word cleave means to be cemented together, to be glued together. I was thinking here a few weeks ago, I glued something together. Um, my tennis shoe had the sole flopping. And my kids give me a hard time for not just taking such a shoe and throwing it away. Well, why would you do that when you can glue it? And I, so I bought some shoe glue, goo, shoe goo, and I, I glued that sole back together. I stuck it together, and after it was dried, it was as good as new. That sole was cleaving together. 
We need some cleaving to go on in our marriage relationships. We need to be cemented together so tightly that nothing can separate us from one another. Hardship can't separate us from one another. Sickness can't separate us from one another. Old friends can't separate us from one another. Financial stress, or on the other hand, prosperity can't separate us from one another. We are cemented together. Now, you know, there are some glues that don't work until you add a catalyst to it. Just a drop of the catalyst added and the glue is ready to go. And I here a while back, I had something that was plastic that needed glued together. And I took that kind of a glue that needed a catalyst to it. And as I mixed those two together and then put it on that plastic, it bonded so tight. It was like it had never been broken. I want to suggest to you that Jesus is the catalyst in the glue that holds our marriage together. The husband gives his effort and the wife gives her effort, but the catalyst is Jesus and he makes all the difference. He'll help us cleave to one another amidst the most fierce storm. He will help us bond. He will help us Hold on. He will help us endure. When we are weak, He is strong. Now that can be true for your marriage only if you individually have Jesus as a part of your life. The husband needs to have Jesus in his life. The wife needs to have Jesus in his life. And what a difference He can make. And young people, this is why the Bible warns us not to be unequally yoked together. If you are a Christian, you need to marry a Christian. Don't think that you can marry somebody who's not a Christian and you can change them. That's very dangerous thinking. It may not happen that way. It's better to follow God's wisdom. He knows what he's talking about. Commit yourself to marrying only a Christian and then you can grow together. You can sharpen one another in the Lord and encourage each other. Let me give to you a third observation about this passage of scripture. God intended for our marriages to last. Verse 6, what God has joined together, what? Let no man separate. Verse 7, the Pharisees asked Jesus another question. If, and this is the question. If God intended for marriages to last, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce? Do you understand that question? Okay, if, if, if this is God's original intent, if God intended for marriages to last, why did he allow divorce at all? And this is what Jesus has to say to them with that question. He says, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. His original intent was that our marriages would last a lifetime. I sent out a question to several people this week via email, and it was interesting to hear back some of the responses to that question. The question that I sent was this. 
what do you think is the benefit of being married to the same person for life? Let me read to you some of the different responses that I got back from members of our congregation. Jennifer Addington, one of my secretaries, said this, The simple joy of being able to share all of life's memorable moments together with your children and grandchildren. The joy of living out God's plan for marriage. Here's what Gene Armstrong said to that question. One true benefit is being able to share with the one person your concerns, your hopes, your prayers, your fears. To know that they will hold your thoughts dear to their heart just as you will theirs. No one else will ever be joined with you in the same way. Sharon Campbell said this, it takes a lifetime to get them trained. (laughs) A good marriage, she goes on to say, a good marriage requires give and take from both parties, requires love, devotion, honesty, commitment. By putting forth these efforts and building a strong relationship which results in marriage to the same person for life, I am pleasing God, which is the best benefit of all. My wife said this to that question. And she and Sharon must have been conferring with one another. She says, you only have to try to train one person. (laughs) The stability and security of knowing one person loves you so much in your good and bad times is an amazing thing. Doug Niemeyer, one of our elders, said this. Well, that's what God intends. (laughs) Boy, is that true. He goes on to say, On the other hand, getting along with one person for that long is a challenge in and of itself. Trying to get along with someone else might just be impossible. (laughs) Rick Masters. Rick had a whole book to say, but I'm just going to quote you a little bit, Rick. Knowing that being obedient to God in this brings about his best for the whole family. Bob Beckham, in answer to this question. You you know each other's idiosyncrasies and have probably learned to tolerate them. You know each other's likes and dislikes. Your value systems have had a chance to mesh. Your kids have stability and your grandkids as well. Larry Shedd answered in one word, relationship. What do you think is the benefit of being married to the same person for life? relationship, the security in that love relationship. Dale Johnson, in fact, he and Betty celebrated 59 years of marriage this last week. Uh, He said this, make celebration of special events and holidays much simpler. No alimony payments, he said. (laughs) A lifetime of shared experiences make for a strong bond between husband and wife. Kelly Toll said the most amazing benefit is that someone knows you, all of your good and your bad qualities, and loves you all the same. Matt McGee, and I'll end with this one, said this. You have taken off all the mask, shown each other all your weirdness, and are still there. There is deep satisfaction that when you look at each other thinking of all the hills and mountains that you have overcome together and all of the memories that you have built one on top of another my wife likes all my gray hairs because she is with me from before there were any 
It's a sign of the longevity of our relationship. There is something fulfilling about the thought of growing old together, becoming gray and wrinkly, sitting together on a porch swing with my arm around her, rocking back and forth as the sun goes down on our lives. God's plan for marriage was that we would be together for life. And it was a good plan. He wanted us to be fulfilled. He wanted us to be happy. I I will tell you, it takes hard work for marriage to last a lifetime. It takes selflessness. It takes forgiveness. In fact, it takes a lot of forgiveness for marriage to last for a lifetime. It requires two people to communicate with each other. It requires a commitment over the long haul because there are going to be times that you go through hardship and it will be tempting to quit at times. Sometimes the grass may seem greener on the other side of the fence, but my encouragement to you is to stay in the marriage. Work hard at making that marriage work. Honor God by going the distance and it will be so worth it in the long run to you and to your children and to your grandchildren. One final observation from this text. The allowances for divorce and remarriage are not as many as you might think. Verse 9 gives us one allowance. Jesus is speaking here. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another commits and marries another woman commits adultery. Matthew 5.32 gives support to this. Jesus again was speaking in this passage on the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, so according to my understanding... And I have to tell you this topic has been debated by theologians for years and years and years. But to me it seems clear from the text that if there is sexual unfaithfulness within the marriage, then that is a reason for divorce in God's eyes. And that person then is free to remarry. But, hear me. I'll ask it in a question. Does that mean that God likes divorce in this instance? No. Not at all. God never likes divorce. In fact, just the opposite is true. The scripture is very clear about that. God hates divorce. In Malachi chapter 2 verse 16, that's what it says. So I think even in this this instance, when there has been unfaithfulness within the marriage, there should be a grand effort in trying to save the marriage and to forgive your partner and to work through the problems and to go get some Christian counseling and get some help. And don't just go out and get a divorce. You try, if at all possible, to save your marriage. 
But if the marriage can't be saved, if unfaithfulness continues, then according to Jesus, you have a biblical reason to get a divorce and you are free to remarry. I'll give to you a second biblical reason for divorce and remarriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 12 through 15 from the New Living Translation. Now I will speak to the rest of you. This is Paul writing. I will speak to the rest of you, though I do not have a direct command from the Lord. If a Christian man has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to continue living with him, he must not leave her. And if a Christian woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to continue living with her, she must not leave him. For the Christian wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the Christian husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on living, on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the Christian husband or wife is no longer bound to the other, for God has called you to live in peace. Now, it is an assumption, but I think it is a safe assumption that where it says you are no longer bound to the other, then they are free to remarry. Let me summarize to you what Paul was saying in this passage of Scripture. You have a believing partner who is married to an unbelieving partner. And let's just say, for instance, the wife, halfway through her marriage, becomes a Christian. And she changes her whole life. Her interests are now different than what they were when she first married. Her commitments are now different than what they were when she first married. And she is totally committed to Jesus Christ and the husband is not, and he is saying to himself, this is not what I committed myself to. And he wants to live for the world, and she doesn't want to live for the world, and he wants out, and he decides to leave. Paul says, let him go. You are no longer bound. This is a topic that could, could take weeks and weeks to cover fully. I'm looking at two passages of Scripture that address biblical reasons for divorce and remarriage. And someone is sure to be asking me, should a woman be expected to stay in a marriage where there is abuse? Absolutely not. But I will say this, the Bible doesn't address that subject as far as remarriage. In fact, it doesn't address that subject at all. And so where the Bible is silent, I'm going to remain silent from the pulpit anyway. What do I really want you to go away with this morning? I want you to go away with this, that God is in favor of marriage. 
He wants your marriage to last. He wants you to be happy. Jesus can be the catalyst to help you in that marriage. It's our responsibility to make sure that he is in the center of our individual lives. Let's pray together. Lots to think about, Heavenly Father. Help us to take away the truth from this passage. Help us to realize that Jesus can make all the difference in our marriage. I pray that every marriage here, Lord, would be chasing after Jesus as the center of their relationship. I thank you for the many marriages that we have in our church that are good examples. Lord, may that number increase. Help our young people to take Jesus at his word. We pray for their marriages to come to be happy, to be Christ-centered. We pray this in Jesus' name.